Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. We are recording. Hey, everyone. So, Brendan, what is that you have in front of you? This is a blue brand snowball microphone. Wow. Sounds great. It does sound good. Are you talking? Not right now. Okay. I couldn't tell. Hope you didn't spend too much on that mic. (laughs) No, this is the office mic for recording uh, voiceovers for videos. You're Walter Winchell, and you're just about to tell us about Elizabeth Taylor. uh... I didn't know we had one of those. That's so cool. So I think the theme of today's podcast should be there's no place like home. Not only did we just have a few uh, tornadoes blow close to our area, so, you know, Dorothy and wanting to get home, but also it seems like everybody in the world wants to call this part of the world home. With us today is Bill Sutton. Hi, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And we have Brendan O'Reilly. Hey, Brendan. Hi, Annette. I am Brendan O'Reilly. I am the features editor. And Catherine Manu. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Annette. Um, I'm Catherine Manu, sometimes known as Georgie, and I am the publisher of the Express News Group. And finally, we have Joe Shaw. Hey, Joe. Hi, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group, sometimes known as Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> That's another episode. <laughs> Yeah, just FYI, if anybody ever runs into Catherine Manu on the street, do not call her Kathy. Your life will not go well. I, I am just so absolutely giggly about somebody calling you Kathy, because it's just, you're, you're not a Kathy by any stretch of the imagination. Interesting sidebar. The reason I'm called Georgie, because in the hospital, my grandmother started calling me Kathy right after I was born, and my mom was like, yeah, no. She's not a Kathy. No offense to Kathy's out there. You're just not a Kathy. I know a lot of Kathy's. They're wonderful people. But you're just I know a- wonderful Kathy's too. They're great. Yeah. Um, but I'm not a Kathy. My mom saw it. And so my middle name is Georgette. And so she immediately started calling me Georgie. It also goes better with Jonna, who is your twin sister. So that it does. Works. It does kind of right. I think that was a good move on her part. So my name is Annette Hinkle, and I am the arts and living editor at the Express News Group. We're going to talk about what is evident of what's going on out here, but maybe with a bit of the inside story. Yesterday, which would have been Thursday, the Express News Group held one of their Express sessions in which we had a lot of real estate professionals and, um, and lawyers and, and all sorts of business people on to talk about the whole real estate situation here. And some of the big questions that we had that we looked to get answered are, who are the buyers coming out here? What's selling? And more importantly, will the people who have been flocking out here since the COVID crisis hit stick around? Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see Brendan's take on it since he was on the the panel with us. Um, I thought it was interesting that uh, they seem united in the belief that the current market, which is unprecedented, they say, is going to continue into the fall and they don't see a, a real end to it. For three years. I mean, I think a couple people had said that, that they were looking at um, probably a three-year cycle, which I think is really encouraging. Yeah, that surprised me a little bit, Brendan. I, you've been talking with folks too. I, I, I had thought, um, I was surprised at that. I, I, I 
wondered whether this was a, a surge of some sort and we were going to see an ebb after that, but they, this, the, the, the consensus seemed to be that there isn't going to be an ebb anytime soon. What I've seen in the monthly contract signings for single family homes in the Hamptons is that it hit bottom in April, which is what you would expect because the shutdown started in late March. And then it picked up in May to the point where it was level with 2019, which being level with 2019 would normally not be impressive because 2019 was not a super impressive year. But considering that it was a pandemic, that was impressive. And then following May, it shot up in June 89%. And then in July, it shot up 120% when you compare July 2020 to July 2019. So 2019 being an average year or even a soft year for the Hamptons market, um, beating it wasn't that impressive, but beating it by 120%, that's super impressive. That's something that you just never see. So we're probably looking at the best summer for Hamptons real estate sales, uh, maybe in history. I mean, the last time we had a really great Hampton sales market was like 2014, 2015, heading into 2016, but then things started to trail off. When the pandemic hit, even before it hit, just when it was on the horizon and it was just coming into the picture before the governor of New York started to announce closures and shutdowns and limiting gatherings, people saw the writing on the wall and they said, let's get out to the Hamptons, let's let's rent something. But then everybody started to come at once. People who did not have a summer rental booked were also coming out. Uh, People started to come out and we're finding that there wasn't a lot to choose from. You had homeowners that weren't vacating and weren't going to rent out that summer. And you have a lot of rentals where they only rent for two weeks of the summer, or maybe they rent out two weeks in July, two weeks in August, and then the homeowners use it for the rest of the summer. This year, everybody wanted a season-long rental, and every landlord wanted to rent season-long. Nobody wanted to have people coming in and out of their house every two weeks. Nobody wanted to move in on Monday into a house that somebody was just living in on Sunday. There was a lot of pandemic fears that turned this trend that we've seen for several years of season-long rentals shrinking and shrinking until it got to the point where most people were doing two-week rentals, which is the minimum in most villages and towns on the East End. That trend just disappeared almost overnight, becoming not only season-long rentals, but pre-season rentals and post-season rentals. And we've gotten to the point where people are trying to rent for the fall or trying to rent for year-round. But rental prices skyrocketed. Something that might have cost you $100,000 to rent for the summer last year probably cost you $120,000, $150,000, according to some of those real estate agents on the panel yesterday, $200,000. So at the rate that you're paying $200,000 for a rental, a lot of people said, well, let's buy. And it was it, the result was really kind of a feeding frenzy, both with the sales and the rental market from the sound of it. And uh, the, you know, supply and demand... Uh, was just completely out of whack in both directions. And I think it drove all the prices up, uh, both for rentals uh, and for sales. But there's been no shortage of deals cut um, in both areas. All day. So uh, let's go to Mala Sander. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like akin to what happened at 9-11. Um, during 9-11, there was a, all of a sudden there was a lull. There was nothing that was going on. And then two weeks later, the phone started to ring and everybody wanted to get out of the city and come out here. 
for what they thought was going to be a temporary just until things got settled back in. But this is the East End is such a very special place to live. I think people are finding the other thing that came that, up uh, you know, that I that I thought was intriguing was the ripple effect on the both the year-round rental market and the sales market for working class folks who make up the the bulk of the people who live here that 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 what we talked about um was largely not focused on on those parts of the market and obviously for for obvious reasons the local real estate industry isn't that focused on that part of the market because it's a very uh the returns are, are a lot smaller but for the long-term health of our region i feel like the, the ripple effect of this is going to affect those affordable housing options both for renters and buyers it, i found it it struck me because i think somebody on the panel said well now we have an affordable housing crisis i think most people would say the affordable housing crisis already existed but i think it's now at another level it's just urgent action is going to need to be taken the year-round rental market was already a disaster for your average working class person. Um, even your average professional who's making, you know, a healthy salary could struggle to find a rental um, that they could afford out here. I mean, we, we were fortunate enough to buy our house about five years ago. Prior to that, we rented in many different locations. And we watched the rents jump from, you know, $1,500 for a one-bedroom apartment with its own kitchen and living room to now, pre-COVID, that same place would probably go east of the canal for three grand. Um, so you already had a rental market that was just totally unrealistic for people. You also had a really low year-round rental market stock because a lot of people would choose to instead rent for the summer where they're going to make close to the same amount of money as they would to have a year-round renter in. Um, but, you know, they don't have somebody in that house year-round. Um, so that was already an issue. Now, on the flip side of that, I also know a lot of year-round residents who would take advantage of the rental market in the summer and maybe rent their house out and, you know, camp or go stay with family or friends somewhere else as a means of supplementing their income so that they can continue to afford to live here. And I think that there is still um, a portion of the year-round population that does rely on that income. But the idea that now it's even more challenging to get a year-round rental, Joe, I think you're right. I mean, we were already in a crisis, um, and now it's going to be the kind of situation where you're just going to see families leaving right and left. we had a, a lot of discussions in the past about allowing people to put little cottages or um, little rental units on their on their back property and just wonder where that stands right now. I know that Sac Harbor talked about trying to make accessory apartments and I don't think they had a whole lot of success getting people to come forward, did they Georgie? This idea was kind of a, a really great way to create housing stock um, and also allow people to supplement their incomes, allowing legalizing an accessory structure, whether it was attached or detached, um, whether that was allowed depended on what municipality you're in. In Sag Harbor, you can have a legal attached affordable apartment. You do have to go through a regulatory process to make sure it's safe. But I mean, I think only a handful of people 
have gone through that process. And a lot of the accessory structures in Sag Harbor happen to be detached structures. Currently under the code, that's not a legal apartment. They have talked about changing that, but you know, those conversations stalled as many conversations did right as COVID hit. In East Hampton, you can have a attached or detached affordable apartment. I actually have one on my house that is attached um, that we built with my mother-in-law and that's where she lives and it's great. There are limited numbers in each hamlet for the detached structures. So like, I think it's 10 or 20 per hamlet. The idea being that they didn't want, you know, one hamlet to be inundated with new units and potentially impacting the schools. However, it sounds like really nobody is really jumping in on this program. Chris Nuzzi uh, was one of our panelists um, on Thursday, and uh, he was on, he's a title search guy, that's what his business is, but of course he's also a former Southampton Town Councilman, and so we were able to talk with him a little bit about the difficulties of local governments and local municipalities, and, and they face this, and they have faced it for 20 years. Affordable housing has been a primary concern for local uh, elected officials for 20 years, and, and uh, it's just not an easy task for them uh, to, to get anything substantial. happened in the early parts of March, in the middle of March, and, and the rush to come out to uh, out here to the East End, and, and I think you know, what is almost considered as a refuge on top of many other things, um, it created an incredible amount of pressure on uh, you know, the municipalities to try to administer uh, these rental permits for people who are complying. And, and, and this part of the discussion is outside of the new state law related to uh, the landlord-tenant uh, 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 issues that we were talking about prior. Um, you know, I know being, being involved uh, years ago as a member of the town board and also being involved on the outside and helping, to, helping clients and, and you know, buyers, sellers, tenants, whomever, try to obtain some of these permits that it's been really difficult to get through the municipality, uh, many of which were closed. What were some of the other highlights of the discussions yesterday? It seems like most of the people who are buying out here now are from the metro area. We're not getting a lot of, you know, foreigners um, can't come now because of the travel bans and, um, and people do seem to be reluctant to travel too far. So it sounded like most of the people who are coming out here are from New York City and environs. And of course, the big question is the impact not only that's going to have on the schools, but also what do we think that the influx of this new energy, especially if it sticks around after September, might do as far as changing the flavor of our towns and villages out here? Well, I know for years, Southampton Village has been talking about getting the retail stores to stay open past five or past six so they could have a nice evening scene, uh, having late night dining, have vibrancy in the village, not just in July and August, but also in September, October, November. And the way to achieve that is with a year-round population of people with disposable income that do things like go out and shop on a weeknight after work, go out to a restaurant after work. Uh, you're not going to achieve that unless you increase your year-round population. And here it is. Here's the year-round population. This is what we wanted. We didn't want every single year-round home to be bought by some seasonal resident who was going to put money into the economy for two months of the year, but then leave the local economy hanging in February when people are really struggling. I mean, I think pre-COVID, we saw the benefits of the outdoor dining on local economy. You know, in Sag Harbor, um, 
was one of the first municipalities that basically allowed restaurants um, through an annual permit to move seats from inside outside onto the sidewalk um, in an effort to kind of keep this vibrancy um, of the village alive into the evening hours. And I know that Southampton had looked at Sag Harbor and was like, ooh, maybe we should think about something like that. Um, you know, so I think pre-COVID, you saw the benefits of outdoor dining on a business district in the evening. Um, and now I think post-COVID, it's almost an essential. I mean, if what we were hearing from um, the doctor that we had on the previous session about education um, is true, then we could be looking at two plus years um, of this being our new reality. And if that's the case, then certainly we're gonna need those outdoor dining options and other kinds of creative retail solutions on the table if local businesses are gonna survive. I was struck that, that we had, you know, we had a, a really good group of important folks from the real estate community on the panel. And at least two of them said that they moved out here after 9-11. And that was a very similar circumstance where there was a lot of emotional-driven uh, decisions about moving out of the city and coming here as a refuge. It's a, there's a comparison. If there's a comparison to be made, I think that's the comparison that, that makes the most sense, that, that there was a real emotion-driven market back after 9-11. But those two both moved out here in the similar circumstances and have stayed. And someone made the point that this is a real opportunity as well, that uh, we may see an influx, uh, the opposite of a brain drain. You're going to see a lot of entrepreneurs and, and really talented folks from the city who may decide to move out here and make this their full-time residence now. And you, you might see an influx of a whole lot of really talented people who can come into the local economy and, and you know, give it I, a I moved out here after 9-11, so I was, I was one of those crew. And, you know, and now I just feel like it's a whole other world. My, my wife runs a little school learning center, and you know, she could put 20 people in there in the fall, and she's got full boat with 55 people in queue. Real estate broker Ed Brule was actually one of those people, and he's still here. So not only the schools being doubled, but our infrastructure is being doubled. And I don't, I don't see like September, everyone going home. I just don't, I don't see that right now. That's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing they're here all year. And can, can we address that and all get along and make it a better place year round, not just in the summer? You know, I think every single deal we have is three or four bidders on it. So that's three or four people who are not going to win a deal and then have to look for something next week. And this is rolling over week after week and it's causing an incredible setup in this marketplace and, and I don't think it goes away and I don't see him going back so if you're asking me what I think happening I think the people who are living here are living here and staying here and the people who want to go back are going to go back in the future will still go back but this will still be the primary home I think that's the big pivot where the primary home used to be in the city I think the primary home will be here and even if the city turns back on it'll still be 50 50 I think I think they will no longer take this this second home the vacation home for granted I think they, I think ultimately we're, we sell luxury bunkers at, at any price point. And I think that's what they're doing and they're appreciating them more. And I, I think the other thing I'd like to but on the opposite end of that though, is had this culture out here where those people would come in for a couple months, paid their, their hefty property taxes on their very expensive properties. And we thank them for that, but then they didn't utilize a lot of the services throughout the rest of the year. And, and, and now they will be and, and with kids in school and, 
you know, and other services from from the towns and, and villages and, and municipalities. So there's always a balancing act there and which, you know, which side will it come down on? What may have caused people to go back after 9-11, as opposed to what may happen now, is just the technology and the ability for people to live and work out here and be remote, work remotely, get, get everything done, where you didn't have that same technology after 9-11. I can remember how slow the internet was back then. I can't imagine trying to do my job today remotely with, with that technology, but now it's just so much easier. And, and I think you know, after 9-11, you had, you had people started going back, you know, maybe they stayed on the weekends, but they went back into the city during the week. Now there's no need to do that if they can do everything remotely. So, so that's a big change. It's also kind of a generational shift. You know, in the last few years, it's really different. Everybody sitting at what looks like a coffee bar with their laptops or in a, in a cozy chair in the corner. And it's almost like the whole idea of working remotely and not being seen at your desk is a generational thing. And it's no longer seen that you're, you must not be doing your job if you're not right under my eyeballs. The realtors talked a lot about how people are now seeing their homes, not just as a living space, but also an everything space. You know, like everybody's ordering Peloton bikes because nobody wants to go back to the gym. And if schools are not going to be in person, they got to have space that's dedicated to educating their children and then their office space. And they need, you know, bigger pantries and bigger, you know, kitchens because they're going to be cooking a lot more. It's almost like in this 21st century model, everybody's back to the little house on the prairie homesteading ideal where you just settle in for the long haul and you are on your own, which is a lot different than, you know, whereas 9-11 seemed more about people working together and, and kind of building community and supporting one another. You know, after 9-11, you'd get on an airplane and people would discuss in the gate, oh, if something goes wrong, you, you got my back, right? We're going we're gonna to deal with this, right? Now it's like you sit suspiciously, you know, with your face mask on and you don't want to touch your go on your anyone. So that's the other thing that's really weird about 9-11 versus now is that it's sort of driving everybody into their hidey hole, which I guess apparently is a backyard in the Hamptons at this point. You know, I'm curious to get your, your take and, and Brendan's take and Annette's take, everybody who's listening to the event. You know, it's understandable that the folks that we had on the panel are almost giddy about this because they're in the real estate industry. It's been a remarkable time to be in the real estate industry out here right now. They're all tired. They talk about how hard they're working. And uh, it's clear that that it's just a boom time in the real estate, real estate industry. So there's a giddiness and a positivity to it that was part of our conversation yesterday. But there are some pluses and minuses to this. And, and I think that, that we have, uh, Brendan, I'm curious what you think of whether this might be a transformational period uh, for our region, that, that this kind of quick influx of so many people and, and the, the point about you know, the fact that I think Bill said that they weren't, these are, these are when we had influx of people before, they didn't use resources and they didn't take up space in schools and they didn't, you know, those things weren't part of the, the package before and they will be now uh, to a large degree. This has a chance to really apply new pressures uh, in all the places that we already had some weaknesses. I think what we're going to see is that very wealthy school districts that have very small class sizes where they might have six or eight kids in the first grade 
there, some parents may say, well, it's a charming schoolhouse. Let me send my kid there for elementary. When you start getting into junior high and high school, a lot of these people that are buying houses for $2 million, $3 million, $4 million and up, they're not going to send their kids to public high school. They're not going to do it just because it's Long Island and it's quaint. They're going to do a private program. Like we saw uh, the Avenues School open up a branch in the Hamptons and many of those kids might never step foot on that campus in this fall semester, but that school is overwhelmed with applications because people want to get their children into a fancy private school. One other thing that struck me along those lines, and I think it was Adam Miller who was saying it, that part of what's going on here, people who had the means to afford it and bought houses, that that house is now their security. And an uncertain time and a challenging time emotionally, not knowing what the future is going to bring, to be able to put that money down and have a spot, have a safe spot where they and their families can live and feel like they're a little separated from what's going on in the world is, is really important. And I think there's a real emotional element to this boom and to the house buying out here. There's, there's another point that, that I made at the sessions that I was in West Hampton Beach recently, and they, of course, uh, just terrible timing with the, the, the virus and everything, but they have invested an enormous amount in a complete remake of the downtown uh, village uh, business district. And it is remarkable. It really is a transformation uh, that I think is going to pay huge benefits for, for the village for years to come. So I think other villages are going to have to talk about similar kinds of things. It's just going to have to be the way it goes. I'm also wondering too, Joe, can you talk a little bit about what makes it so spectacular? Like, do you see it being structured in a way that people would be more encouraged to hang out on a main street in a way that they don't normally? Yeah, that's exactly it. They've changed the the streetscape uh, and made it much more pedestrian friendly. Uh, They've added some island type areas with uh, bench seating that are sort of like little little cul-de-sacs that you can go off into for conversations, which again, unfortunately with COVID-19, the timing wasn't necessarily so great, but they are actually distanced enough that folks can use the facing benches uh, Two two sets of folks can sit on benches and talk, and I don't think they would bother each other. Um, and it's just an attractive streetscape. And when you walk around in the evening, as we did, there were lots of people just strolling. And that's that's what I think a lot of the – I mean, Sag Harbor certainly has that. Um, Southampton Village has been experimenting with Southampton in the streets, which involves closing down the two main business district streets and opening them up to pedestrians. I think that's been successful in many ways, uh, but I, I just think that it's going to be the new reality moving forward. These are the the virus has accelerated a lot of the conversations that we have needed to have for years and years and years, and um, I don't think we can sit on our hands on, anymore. I think we do. Georgie and I have talked about this. We do need to talk about school consolidation. That's been a conversation that needed to happen years ago. It's time that the virus has sort of shown it's, it's shined a light on just how serious that conversation. It's important to have it. We need to talk about streetscapes and in the villages and and approaching those. We need to talk about um, the sewer upgrades to allow for, for more development in, in some areas to, to try and create some affordable housing. The affordable housing situation is dire now. 
Um, it's going to begin to become, I, I really, you know, I don't want to sound like chicken little here, but I really do think that the affordable housing situation was bad to begin with. It's becoming existentially a problem now because it's going to make this area much less attractive to the high end folks if they can't get in and out because of the trade parade traffic and if they can't get services because people don't live here anymore who do those services, these are going to start to become real problems. And, and I think the problems start at the top, but they trickle down to the bottom. And, and um, I, I feel like that's one of the focuses that we need to have moving forward. The impact will trickle down to everybody as people start to leave. Like our volunteer fire departments and ambulance corps are volunteer. <laughs> they don't cost the tax base a tremendous amount of money. If there are no people to do that kind of volunteerism, and if we don't see this second homeowner community that's becoming a year-round community now um, buy into the community through volunteerism, then we're going to have to start paying for those services. And that's going to be very expensive. And that's just one example of how things change without a year-round working community. I also, I mean, and all of that is one level of the impact, but I just think there's a quality of life impact that when you start to, when, when, when average people doing the average jobs are gone, you're not going to be able to get plumbers. You're not going to be able to get landscapers. You're not going to be able to get people to work in restaurants. I mean, you can only, sh I mean, grocery stores, these, these things, they're already shipping, you know, I know one of the local grocery stores was busing folks in to work at the, the, the grocery store. I mean, it, it starts to become untenable to have a working community around these million, you know, multi-million dollar mansions. And, and I feel like that has the potential to start to take a negative turn if we don't address it. And, and the, the failure to, to have any kind of significant affordable housing measures locally, I think is really going to come back to bite us in the, in the near, the very near future. I think it's probably starting, we're feeling the effects now, and I think it's only going to get worse. I will say though, I think that there is a flip side to that, Joe. Um, I do think that there are a num number of locally owned businesses that will actually um, thrive as a result of this new normal in terms of a year-round population that, as Brendan pointed out, will have a certain amount of money to spend. So that local landscape company that's owned by somebody who's a, been a year-round person working on the East End for 20 years may find they have twice as much work now. Um, restaurants may find that what was traditionally a very sleepy January, February, March, maybe they have you know, an influx of takeout business during those months that they never could have had before um, because there's this group of people that have the ability to spend money here. Um, so I, I do think that there are pluses and minuses, you know, and I think that there are a lot of wonderful families that are probably joining our communities right now too. And I do, while I do think affordable housing and school consolidation and services, like these are conversations that we have to have. And frankly, we've probably just planned our fall express sessions during the session right now. Um, I think that there's also a lot of positivity that could come from this. And I am wary of the us and them conversation that tends to emerge, especially 
with the national media, even like the New York Times, Vanity Fair, we've seen all these stories, you know, the Hamptons are being overrun by all of these people and everybody hates it. Oh my God. And there are a lot of good people moving here with their children because it makes them feel safe and they'll be contributing parts of our community. So I, you know, I don't want it to get too far into the SNM stuff, you know. Speaking of contributing, who's going to the uh, Trump dinner tonight at, um, or is it tomorrow night at $580,000 per couple? Any of you? Takers? I, I've been calling and calling and calling the White House and I just, I haven't got a response, but there is a, a dark SUV parked across the street now. So I'm hopeful that I've made some headway. I think, I think they're doing a background check on me right now. And they're going to come in with a really long swab and shove it up your nose. Make sure you're not. <laughs> I didn't get it. I didn't get an invitation. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.